So today we are going to be discussing jhana. And I'm going to be reading from Majjhimanikaya 111, Anupada Sutta, one by one as they occurred. Thus have I heard on one occasion the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jetta's Grove, Anathapindika's Park. There he addressed the bhikkhus thus, Bhikkhus, Venerable Sir, they replied. The Blessed One said this, Bhikkhus, Sariputta is wise. Sariputta has great wisdom. Sariputta has wide wisdom. Sariputta has joyous wisdom. Sariputta has quick wisdom. Sariputta has keen wisdom. Sariputta has penetrative wisdom. During half a month, Sariputta has penetrative, sorry, bhikkhus, Sariputta gained insight into states one by one as they occurred. Now Sariputta's insight into states one by one as they occurred was this. So here the Buddha is praising Sariputta for his wisdom. Sariputta has been known to be the one who was very keen with his wisdom. He was very penetrative with his understanding of the Tama. If you look at Digha Nikaya number 32 and 33, or 33 and 34, you'll see that Sariputta lays out the entire Tama one by one in different numerical categories. So his understanding of the Tama is great like the ocean. And that is why he is one of the Buddha's chief disciples. The other chief disciple is Moglana, Maha Moglana, who was an adept at psychic faculties. So Sariputta was more, let's say, head-centered, whereas Moglana was more heart-centered, more intuitive, so to speak. So here the, the Buddha is praising Sariputta's wisdom. And when he talks about the different kinds of wisdom that he has, he says he has great wisdom, wide wisdom, joyous wisdom, quick wisdom, keen wisdom, penetrative wisdom. This is all pointing to the same thing. This wisdom, when he says wise or wisdom, he's referring to the understanding of dependent origination and therefore also pointing to the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. Here, bhikkhus, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, Sariputta entered upon and abided in the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought, with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. So now we're talking about the first jhana. What is part of the first jhana? First and foremost, quite secluded from sensual pleasures. This means that the mind is secluded from any sensory activity. It's not paying attention to any kind of sensory activity. First of, first of all, when you sit down to meditate, generally speaking, you close your eyes. So you shut off any kind of sensory experience through vision. And as you bring or establish mindfulness before you, that is to say you relax the mind and body, uh, 
and now come to the intention of bringing up loving kindness, you are here with the mind. Sensual pleasures have to do with pleasures related to the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, and the body. These are the five cords of sensual stimulation, as the Buddha calls them. And so sensual pleasures that we experience through these five physical sense bases are, are one kind of pleasure. But now the Buddha is talking about a different kind of pleasure. The only way you can let go of your attachment to certain pleasures is to understand them, acknowledge them, and then replace them with a pleasure that is greater. So, in other words, you know, like uh, there was this great scientist named R. Buckminster Fuller. And he said, you never fight the existing reality or you never, you never replace the existing reality by fighting it. You put a new model in its place so that the old one becomes obsolete. So when you have greater mental pleasure, then the central pleasure seems weak seems uninteresting. And so the purpose of jhana is multifaceted. There's different ways of understanding jhana. But primarily, you are getting into jhana because you are letting go of the grosser uh, sense pleasures. So when you still your mind, you collect your mind around an intention of bringing up loving kindness, you are now with the mind. Secluded from unwholesome states. What are unwholesome states? The five hindrances. So to be in a jhanic state of mind, there are two components, generally speaking. And this is the way I would explain it. And this is the way I have understood and experienced it. A jhanic state is void of any kind of hindrance. And it, it has the presence of the seven enlightenment factors in varying degrees. That's the basis for any jhanic state. No hindrance present and the presence of enlightenment factors. And you'll see why I say this as we progress through the jhanas. And so this is accompanied by applied and sustained thought. That's the vitaka and vichara, thinking and examining thought. In this tradition, the way we interpret this is when you intentionalize bringing up a feeling of loving kindness, that is the applied thought. And when you put your mind or rest your awareness on that feeling, that is the sustained thought. With rapture and pleasure born of seclusion, this is very important to understand. When you let go of the hindrance in your mind, for that moment your mind feels relief. And in that relief there is happiness. And this is the rapture, the piti, and the sukha. That sukha is comfort in the body. Your body feels very comfortable and stable. Born of seclusion, which means born of having let go of the hindrances. Through the non-presence of 
the five hindrances, the mind feels relief. Therefore, it starts to experience joy. Therefore, it starts to experience happiness and comfort in the mind and body. And the states in the first jhana, the applied thought, the sustained thought, the rapture, the pleasure, and the unification of mind, ekarkata, the unification of mind. Generally speaking, ekagata is translated as single-pointedness or one-pointedness of mind. I would look at this as being a unified mindset. And the way I would explain that is the same analogy as I used before, which is the mind, its attention is not scattered. Its attention is together, unified towards one object. But that doesn't mean that necessarily that it becomes so focused and so concentrated that it suppresses everything else in that process. The mind orbits or stays with the theme of loving kindness all throughout the meditation. The attention revolves around the feeling of loving kindness. Or another way to put it is the awareness is imbued with loving kindness. The awareness rests in that feeling of loving kindness. The contact, feeling, perception, volition, and mind. The zeal, decision, energy, mindfulness, equanimity, and attention. The contact, feeling, perception, volition, and mind. Here I'll see attention as well. These constitute mind. Mind is only known by its factors. When we look at dependent origination, we look at one of the links of dependent origination, which is Nama Rupa. Rupa is the physical form, the body, which is made up of the four great elements or the states of matter. And Nama, which is made up of the mental factors of contact, feeling, perception, intention, and attention. So what is the contact here that we're experiencing? This is contact with mind and the mind object, which is the loving kindness. The feeling, which is the actual feeling of loving kindness. The perception, which is perceiving that the mind is experiencing loving kindness. The intention, the intention begins when you have the intention to stay with the feeling of loving kindness or to bring up and then stay with the feeling of loving kindness. And the attention, the attention here is the spotlight on which the loving kindness is. When the spotlight goes away towards something else, which is a distraction, that's when you use the six R's. That's when you recognize you're distracted. You release your attention from that. You relax the tightness and tension in mind and body. Come back to the smile, return back to your object of meditation. Now the spotlight is gently brought back to the feeling of loving kindness. That is your attention. Zeal, the zeal here is the chanda, the wholesome inclination of mind. The wholesome inclination of mind starts when you want to have loving kindness in your heart. When your mind inclines towards letting go, when your mind inclines towards Nibbana. This is the chanda that we talk about. The decision, the decision here is Adhimoko, resolving yourself to sitting down and meditating. Energy, here we're talking about having the balanced energy. Not too much, not too little. 
too much energy and you will feel a lot of restlessness arising. Too little and you will start to feel dullness of mind. And so that balance of energy is brought up by right effort through the six R's. Mindfulness, that is the sati. Remembering to stay observant of your object of meditation. In this sense, when you are meditating, what you're actually doing or what you will be doing as you start to progress through this practice is you are actually watching mind meditating. You are not the meditator. You are watching the mind meditate. This is metacognition. Equanimity. This equanimity, this upeka that we speak of, that is seeing things as they actually are without getting affected by what it is you are seeing or experiencing. So there is a level of dispassion that arises through this equanimity. And there is a level of distance from the observer and the object of observation, so to speak. And as I said, attention. So here the mind that we speak of is really consciousness your awareness of what is arising and passing away. So the awareness is one thing, and the awareness flows through where the attention is put. So in other words, the spotlight goes in one direction, and so now the awareness through that attention goes to that loving kindness. So your mind becomes imbued with that loving kindness. These are the different states that Sariputta was able to distinguish and delineate in this particular jhana. And he does that for every single jhana as he progresses. That's not the goal here. You don't have to do that. But it allows you to see what it is that you are experiencing. As you progress and become better with jhanas, your attention becomes clearer. You yourself will be able to see these different states arising and passing away. And this is where we talk about the samatha and vipassana coming together. The samatha aspect is the factors of the jhana present in the mind. And the vipassana aspect is what Sariputta experiences now. It says, these states were defined by him one by one as they arose. Or as they occurred. Known to him those states arose. Known they were present. Known they disappeared. What is he seeing here? He is seeing the impermanent nature of the different factors involved in that jhana. So he's not getting tied up in that experience. He is seeing for himself that this jhana itself is impermanent and therefore should not be held on to if it changes, if anything happens. Therefore, it says, he understood thus so indeed, these states not having been come into being, having been, they vanish. Regarding those states, he abided unattracted, unrepelled, independent, detached, free, disassociated, with a mind rid of barriers. He didn't get caught up in the experience of the jhana. Didn't get caught up in whether he was experiencing jhana or not. Just observing like a movie. This is how your practice will be. You're just watching how the different states arise with the loving kindness as your object being the anchor for your mind, being the anchor for your mind's attention. And so you are just glued to your seat 
watching what the latest episode is in this series of your mind. Watching the movie go by. That's it. And in doing so, you remain disassociated. You remain detached, independent, with the mind rid of barriers. He understood there is an escape beyond, and with the cultivation of that attainment, attainment, he confirmed that there is. There is another way to understand jhana here. Jhanas, I propose, are levels of cessation. We experience nirodha, which is the cessation of suffering altogether. But on the way to it, you experience certain jhanas. And these jhanas cease coarser and coarser experiences, automatically, progressively, naturally. So as you progress through these stages of insight, facilitated by the jhana, you start to see your subtler and deeper layers of the mind as the coarser layers start to cease because your attention goes from one layer to the deeper layer. The other thing to understand with jhana is that you think about it this way. The feeling of loving kindness or whatever your object of meditation might be, whether it's radiating the Brahma Viharas, whether it's quiet mind, whatever it might be. That's the conversation. Let's say you are sitting in a room somewhere and you're having a conversation. So you, the observer, are watching the object of meditation. This is your conversation. Maybe you are in a restaurant or maybe you're somewhere where there is ambient noise. Maybe there's music playing. There's chattering going on here and there. Now, if you put your attention on the ambient noise, you lose awareness of what it is the other person is saying. In the same way, these different factors that are present in the mind are just the background of the mind. The jhana is just the background, letting you know where you are and you're in your path, in your quest for nibbana. But if you pay attention to the ambient noise or you pay attention to the factors of the jhana, you're not going to be paying attention to the loving kindness. And now your mind becomes distracted by this or that. There can be a tendency for the mind to mistake the joy factor of the jhana for the metta or the happiness factor or whatever it might be. And by doing so, they feel a person feels like the metta has disappeared because they have mistook the joy for, for the metta. The joy will invariably disappear as you progress. So don't mistake the factor of the jhana for the object. Of meditation. Again, bhikkhus, with the stilling of applied and sustained thought, Sariputta entered and abided in the second jhana, which has self-confidence and singleness of mind without applied and sustained thought, with rapture and pleasure born of collectedness. So now when you get to the second jhana, you are no longer having any applied and sustained thought. The thinking and examining thought disappear. That doesn't mean that there won't be background thoughts, but there won't be any more intentionalizing of bringing up the feeling of loving kindness. Once the awareness rests on the loving kindness, this is what is meant when the mind lets go of what brought up the loving kindness and stays with just the loving kindness. So now the initial in intentionalizing 
of bringing up through phrasing, bringing up through memories, bringing up through gratitude, whatever it is that works for you. All of that is let go of, and now you just stay with the loving kindness. And now once you stay with the loving kindness, there is this smoothness that happens. The mind just continues with that feeling of loving kindness. And this is where the self-confidence arises. Now the mind is established in staying with the loving kindness. It feels confident. There is no more doubt that it is actually in meditation at this point. Singleness of mind. Again, this is part of that ekagata, singleness of mind. The mind now doesn't have anything else going on except for staying with that feeling of loving kindness. There is no presence of any more disturbing thoughts. No more presence, even in the background, that starts to dissipate. There might be little wisps here and there, but that's no big deal. Those little wisps come and go, but if you pay attention to them, that's where the trouble is. If you allow them to just go on by and stay with the feeling, everything will be fine. With rapture and pleasure born of collectedness. Look at the difference here. In the first case, the first jhana was rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. The second jhana is rapture and pleasure born of collectedness. The difference here is in the first case, the rapture, the joy, the happiness that arises is because of the relief from not having the five hindrances in the mind. In the second case, it's because the mind has become more focused, more collected, more confident in its practice. And the states in the second jhana, the self-confidence, the rapture, the pleasure, and the unification of mind, the contact, feeling, perception, intention, and mind, the zeal, decision, energy, mindfulness, equanimity, and attention. These states were defined by him one by one as they occurred. Known to him, those states arose. Known, they were present. Known, they disappeared. And with the cultivation of that attainment, he confirmed that there is an escape beyond this. Again, bhikkhus, with the fading away as well of rapture, Sariputta abided in equanimity. And mindful and fully aware, still feeling pleasure with the body, he entered upon and abided in the third jhana, on account of which the noble ones announce, he has a pleasant abiding who has equanimity and is mindful. So as you progress from the second to the third jhana, what you will notice is that joy. Now that joy can arise in various degrees. That joy can manifest as heat in the body. That joy can manifest as heat or warmth in the hands. That joy can manifest as an elation in the heart. That joy can manifest as vibration in the body. That joy can manifest as tingling in the body or just a sense of well-being different degrees of joy. But those will all start to dissipate and quiet down and calm down. And what you will be left with is tranquility. In the third jhana, there is an experience there, which is the pleasure with the body, which, which here the Buddha talks about, which is where you feel either the body is very much rooted in the earth and so quite grounded and heavy, or you feel like the body is very light and floating. 
Sometimes you will feel like parts of the body disappear. Sometimes you feel like you're only up in the head and the complete body from the neck down has gone. Different degrees. Sometimes you'll feel like the feeling of loving kindness has expanded. It's starting to radiate. It's starting to go beyond just the body and fill up, your, fill up around your body like an aura. So these are the different things that can happen in the third jhana. And so you have greater equanimity and mindfulness here. So there is a greater degree of clarity in the mind. That self-confidence then translates into greater clarity of mind. There is a quality of spaciousness in the mind. There's a quality of pristine awareness in the mind. And the mind is just with the loving kindness and nothing else. Very quiet, very still. For the most part, again, don't get disturbed if you see thoughts in the background. It's fine. It's okay. The mind is not always going to be as quiet as you think it's going to be. But it will be quiet enough. And the states in the third jhana, the equanimity, the pleasure, the mindfulness, the full awareness, the full awareness. Do you remember this phrase, the full awareness? Sampajanya. Full awareness. And unification of mind, the contact, feeling, perception, volition, and mind, the zeal, decision, energy, mindfulness, equanimity, and attention. These states were defined by him one by one as they occurred. Known to him, those states arose. Known, they were present. Known, they disappeared. So here is again a very key emphasis on not getting attached to the experience that you're having. Whatever experience you're having, just experience it. Allow it to be there. But don't, but don't try to judge what it is. Don't try to analyze what it is. Don't try to hold on to the experience. No matter how good it feels, all these experiences are volitionally produced. They are dependently arisen and therefore liable to pass away. So don't hold on to them. They will go away. He understood that there is an escape beyond this, and with the cultivation of that attainment, he confirmed that there is. Again, because with the abandoning of pleasure and pain, and with the previous disappearance of joy and grief, Sariputta entered upon and abided in the fourth jhana, which, is, which has neither pain nor pleasure, and purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. When you get into the fourth jhana, the feeling of loving kindness starts to expand up into the head. By this time, you stop feeling the body. You might feel it a little bit, but now you're up in the head. Now you are almost fully in just the mind. And oftentimes you know you're in the fourth jhana, or Venerable Metananda and I will know you are in the fourth jhana by the way you speak. And by the way you enter the room, it's all good. Everything is fine. Everything is very balanced. 
people speak in a very even-toned manner. They're just very chill and relaxed. There's absolute equanimity in the mind. They don't care about anything. It doesn't matter what's going on. Did they miss their lunch? No big deal. It's raining outside? No big deal. It's all good. You know, they're just completely relaxed, tranquil and equanimous. And the purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. What's happening as you progress through the jhanas is you're actually cycling through the enlightenment factors and they start to gain momentum and strength. There is a way to understand the enlightenment factors in a couple of ways. They are linear, that is to say, mindfulness leads to investigation of states, which leads to energy, which leads to joy, which leads to tranquility, which leads to collectedness, which leads to equanimity. But they also cycle through as you progress through the jhanas. And so by the time you are in the fourth jhana, the mindfulness is so clear, so crisp, due to that equanimity. So in other words, when you're cycling through, you have mindfulness, investigation of states, energy, joy, tranquility, collectedness, equanimity, which then informs the next cycle of mindfulness, investigation of states, energy, joy, tranquility, collectedness, and then equanimity, which continues to further strengthen that mindfulness. So by this time in the fourth jhana, the purity of mindfulness due to equanimity means that the, the mindfulness is completely stable. You are able to stay with your object of meditation for longer periods of time. Initially, there's instability. Maybe you're staying with the object for 10 seconds. Later, you're staying there for 30 seconds. Later, you're staying there for about 45 seconds, about a minute, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes five minutes at a time, and so on. And the states in the fourth jhana, the equanimity, the neither painful nor pleasant feeling, neutral feeling, just very tranquil, relaxed. The mental unconcern due to tranquility, don't care about what's going on, you're pretty content, very content with that tranquility. The purity of mindfulness and the unification of mind, the contact, feeling, perception, volition and mind, the zeal, decision, energy, mindfulness, equanimity and attention. These states were defined by him one by one as they occurred. Known to him these states arose, known they were present, known they disappeared. He understood thus there is an escape beyond this and with the cultivation of that attainment he confirmed that there is. Again, Bhikkhus, with the complete surmounting of perceptions of form, with the disappearance of perceptions of sensory impact, with non-attention to perceptions of diversity, aware that space is infinite, Sariputta entered upon and abided in the base of infinite space. There are only these four jhanas. Now, from here on out, you are experiencing the ayatanas. 
These are the base of experiences. These are the dimensions or planes of experience that are rooted in the fourth jhana. They are spheres of experience that are rooted in the fourth jhana. So here, what is happening? When your mind, when your, when the loving kindness reaches up to the head, Venerable Metananda and I will give you a certain kind of practice to do. This is a practice you do only in one or two sits. After that, we will change your meditation into what's known as the six directions. And the six directions means that you send out the feeling of loving kindness universally, indiscriminately to all living beings in every direction. As you're doing this, you are no longer in the body. The mind feels expansive, starts to expand. And so you surmount the perception of form with non-attention to perceptions of diversity, no longer paying attention to what's going on with the body or the senses. That doesn't mean that they're closed off. All it means is your attention is very much rooted in what is happening in the mind. If a fly is buzzing around, you might still hear it distantly. If it comes and lands on your hand, you might feel it, but very faintly. So that means the disappearance of perceptions of sensory impact. So when I talk about jhanas being levels of cessation, Here's what we're talking about. The first jhana, what ceases, the hindrances. The second jhana, what ceases, the thinking and examining thought. The third jhana, what ceases, the joy factor. The fourth jhana, what ceases, the happiness and pleasure related to the body. Now, the what is commonly known as the fifth jhana, but really infinite space, what ceases. It's the perception of form. Now you are in your mind. You have the idea that you don't have a body. Now you are completely in the mind. And you are in this vast spaciousness which arises. This edgeless space, boundless space. This is the awareness that space is infinite. Because as you send out the feeling of loving kindness in all directions, they keep going for as long as you can keep them going with your intention. Beyond the earth, beyond the solar system, beyond the galaxy, beyond the universe and other universes, it just keeps expanding. And so you have this awareness that space is infinite. But that is not the object, remember. That is just the background experience of the mind the infinitude of space. The object is still radiating, sending out loving kindness. You are, you are in a bubble that keeps expanding, or you are the candle flame that keeps radiating outward infinitely, all throughout space. And the states in the base of infinite space, the perception of the base of infinite space, and the unification of mind, the contact, feeling, perception, intention, and mind. 
the zeal, decision, energy, mindfulness, equanimity, and attention. These states were defined by him one by one as they occurred. Known to him, those states arose. Known, they were present. Known, they disappeared. He understood thus that there is an escape beyond this. And with the cultivation of that attainment, he confirmed that there is. Again, bhikkhus, by completely surmounting the base of infinite space, aware that consciousness is infinite, Sariputta entered upon and abided in the base of infinite consciousness. Now, when you get into infinite space, that feeling of loving kindness, the metta that you experience, that you're radiating, starts to soften up. And it gradually turns into karuna, compassion. That karuna is tied to the experience of infinite space. Now you feel compassion for all living beings. You wish the end of suffering for all living beings. You recognize the suffering in your own self, in your own mind, and therefore understand the suffering in other beings. Sometimes when you have this experience, uh, you'll have a flash of insight that might arise. A person comes into your mental field that might need your help. And obviously now you're, off you're on retreat, but if you do this off retreat, you might find off more often than not that uh, you get a sense that this person needs your help. And you might call them up. Or they might call you up and say, hey, I'm in this situation, I need your help. Right? Or you call them up and they say, I was just thinking about you. So it has happened in people's experience when they do radiate compassion and experience this infinitude of space that they have a connection with other living beings. And then you get into what's known as infinite consciousness. And here that feeling of compassion, which was soft, starts to become empathetic joy. There's a different quality of joy here, a very subtle happiness. You know, the celebration of beings being happy, enjoying the fact that some beings are experiencing relief from suffering. It feels like relief in your own mind. There's a sense of relief and joy in your mind. This is empathetic joy, mudita, which is tied to the experience of infinite consciousness. Now here, generally, the idea is when you see or perceive that consciousness is infinite, the general idea has been that the awareness expands to the limits of infinite space, and then that becomes the awareness. But what we are talking about here goes a little bit deeper than that, which is, yes, you see that fluid awareness for some time, but then you start to see what that awareness is actually made up of. In the same way, you would see a ray of light as one ray of light, but really it's made up of quintillions and quintillions of individual photons. The same way the fluidity of consciousness is made up by iotas 
of individual arising and passing away of sensory consciousnesses. And the way you would experience this if you were experiencing eye consciousness, you might experience a ring of light in the periphery of your vision, or you might experience flickering behind your eyelids. If you're a musician and your ears are more refined, you might experience flickering in the ears. You might experience the tap, tap, tap in the ears. Some people have phantom smells. Some people have tingling in the tongue or phantom tastes that arise. Some people have tingling in their face, vibration in their, in their uh, body. And so this is the arising and passing away of infinite consciousnesses. Some people are able to see the gaps between thoughts. And it just doesn't have to, hap have to happen that it happens in the sitting meditation. It has happened where people are just walking around and suddenly they see the individual frames of reality slowing down. When you used to see a film which had actual film, a movie which had actual film, and if you slowed it down, you could start to see the individual film in that reel, the individual frames in that film reel, and you start to see things slow down. It has happened that people experience this. You might see the flags waving in the air and suddenly they just slow down. Or you might see people moving as if they're under some kind of strobe light and you see every other second movement of their being. So this is also part of infinite consciousness. You might start to hear something in the distance and you hear every other sound wave happening or arising. And so it slows down and you're perceiving the experience. What you are seeing is the arising and passing away of individual contact internally in the mind in relation to that sense field. And the states in the base of infinite consciousness, the perception of the base of infinite consciousness and the unification of mind the contact, feeling, perception, volition, and mind. The zeal, decision, energy, mindfulness, equanimity, and attention. These states were defined by him one by one as they occurred. Known to him, those states arose. Known, they were present. Known, they disappeared. He understood thus, there is an escape beyond this, and with the cultivation of that attainment, he confirmed that there is. Again, bhikkhus, by completely surmounting the base of infinite consciousness, aware that there is nothing. Sariputta entered upon and abided in the base of nothingness. Now what happens is, as you see the arising and passing away of sensory consciousnesses, let's say you're seeing it through your eyes, and you're seeing the flickering, eventually you see the gaps in between each flicker and those gaps start to widen. Or if you're seeing that ring of light, that ring of light starts to dissipate and there is nothing present, no thing present. Or you hear the flickering in the ears or whatever it might be, and you start to notice the gap in between the arising and passing away of each of these experiences. And these gaps start to widen more and more and more until they, they become part of your mental field. And this is the perception of no-thingness. There is nothing present in the mind. The mind becomes disinterested in any kind of experience altogether. 
The reason is because as you see the arising and passing away of consciousnesses, you experience for yourself firsthand the three characteristics. That is to say, you see for yourself the impermanent nature of experience. And thereby, as you start to see the arising and passing away, what happens? It becomes tiresome for your mind. Your mind says, okay, I've seen enough. And that's the dukkha. That's the suffering. And then you realize that there's actually no controller over here. It is arising and passing away dependent upon causes and conditions. And thereby you experience anatta. So the perception of anicca leads to the perception of dukkha. The perception of dukkha leads to the perception of anatta. The perception of anatta leads to the perception of equanimity. And now this equanimity becomes your object, which you continue to radiate. All throughout, you have been radiating compassion through infinite space, empathetic joy through infinite consciousness. Now, equanimity through nothingness. Now, as you radiate that equanimity, your mind becomes quieter and quieter and quieter. Until what happens is your mind decides that it doesn't feel like it wants to radiate anymore. So the analogy that I use is you have a pebble that you drop right into the surface of the lake. And the ripples continue on until they stop. And you keep doing that until your mind says no more. And now mind just wants to rest in itself. And so now you get into where you are, mind is the quiet mind. There's still some activity there, but we call it the quiet mind. This is the luminous mind, the radiant mind, the pabhasara chitta. And so it says, and the states in the base of nothingness, the perception of the base of nothingness, and the unification of mind, the contact, feeling, perception, volition, and mind. The zeal, decision, energy, mindfulness, equanimity, and attention. These states were defined by him one by one as they occurred. Known to him, these states arose. Known, they were present. Known, they disappeared. He understood thus, there is an escape beyond this. And with the cultivation of that attainment, he confirmed that there is. Again, bhikkhus, by completely surmounting the base of nothingness, Sariputta entered upon and abided in the base of neither perception nor non-perception. Now quiet mind here becomes the object. The mind itself becomes the object. Mind rests within itself. The awareness of awareness. People describe this experience as being asleep but awake at the same time. It is like a lucid, deep sleep. Nothing much going on. Initially, they might experience some kind of lucid dreaming, so to speak. Some kind of disconnected thoughts that arise. Some kinds of patterns and shapes and colors and disconnected thoughts, as if they have memories from a life they never knew. And so sometimes people will access past lives through this particular jhana. But those are all distractions. 
understand them to be just the quality of this particular eighth jhana. The reason it's called neither perception nor non-perception is because there is no full recognition of what's going on. Perception here is the recognizing of what is arising. Feeling is the experiencing. The recognition of that experience is perception. Perception is rooted in memory. When you are a child, let's say, or a child goes to a stove fire and puts their hand atop that fire, they feel the heat and then they feel it burning. Now that experience is there, rooted in their mind. The next time they approach fire, they're aware that it can be hurtful. So I better be cautious. That awareness or that knowing is perception that is rooted in the memory of a previous experience. So when you see this as the color red, you know it because when you were in kindergarten, you learned what the color red was, or blue, or that this is a tree, or what type of tree this is. This is a bird, what type of bird this is. This is all perception. So in neither perception nor non-perception, the thoughts that arise, these are what I call proto-thoughts, the sankharas or samskaras. They give rise to certain kinds of patterns, certain kinds of shapes, certain kinds of colors, certain kinds of thoughts, but they don't fully form into a fully perceived thought. Therefore, it is neither perception nor non-perception. And then there are layers to this quiet mind. As you get deeper and deeper, you start to see that the mind becomes utterly still. And it can remain in that stillness for a long period of time. 30, 40, 50, 60 minutes at a time an hour and a half at a time, two hours at a time, three hours at a time, not a single thought in the mind. Not a single thought. Just awareness. Just the luminosity of mind. Now here's what's the interesting thing. It says, he emerged mindful from that attainment. In other words, when he was in neither perception or non-perception, you couldn't fully identify the different things that were going on because that would be full perception. So anytime you are in quiet mind and neither perception or non-perception, and now you start to see something, know that you are no longer in neither perception nor non-perception because you have fully recognized what it is that you're experiencing. So you relax, let go, come back to quiet mind, let the mind relax further into that field of neither perception nor non-perception. But he emerged mindful from that state. So when you come out of that experience, what you do is what he does here. Having done so, he contemplated the states that had passed, ceased, and changed. So for a couple of minutes after you come out of that experience, you review what happened in the mind. And allow whatever comes up, patterns, pictures, shapes, whatever it is. And whatever comes up, you six are. You just let go. Thus, so indeed, these states, not having been, come into being, having been, they vanish. Regarding those states, he abided unattracted, unrepelled, independent, detached, free, dissociated, dissociated with a mind rid of barriers. He understood there is an escape beyond. And with the cultivation of that attainment, he confirmed that there is. 
Again, because by completely surmounting the base of neither perception nor non-perception, Sariputta entered upon and abided in the cessation of perception and feeling. And his taints were destroyed by his seeing with wisdom. So let's unpack that. When you are in neither perception or non-perception, there comes a point where even mind becomes a coarse object. We will talk about this in a few days, but there is what could be known as jhana 8.5, so to speak. This is the signless collectedness of mind. There is, it is an objectless awareness. It happens gradually. Your mind becomes less interested in itself. And the awareness doesn't take anything as an object. And so the analogy here is you point a flashlight out into the sky. And that light continues beaming up into space, but doesn't land on anything, assuming that there's nothing there. There's no asteroid, no planet, no moon, nothing for the light to land upon. And it just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. But eventually, the, the fuel of that, batter, of that flashlight, the batteries, they run out. This is because the mind just keeps observing, but nothing in particular. And when it observes nothing in particular and just keeps observing this objectless awareness, no sankharas arise. And because there is no fuel for your mind's attention to hold on to it, the batteries run out and the mind switches off. There is a cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness. You don't know you are in that state until you come out of that state. When you come out of that state, certain things happen. And when those certain things happen, you experience wisdom or a level of wisdom. You see for yourself how dependent origination arises. You get a preview into how the Four Noble Truths work. And if you completely understand it, like Sariputta, the taints are destroyed by his seeing with wisdom, meaning you become an arahant. He emerged mindful from that attainment. Having done so, he recalled the states that had passed, ceased, and changed thus. So having come out of that state of cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness, he saw certain things come up. I'm not going to tell you what those things are. You have to tell me when you have that experience. But whatever those things are, whatever it is that you see, is the seeing of wisdom. Seeing for yourself how this whole process of dependent origination works. We'll go a little deeper into this in the last few days of what actually happens. Because what's happening is that the mind is becoming deconditioned through these processes of jhana and ayatanas. Eventually becoming unconditioned and touching the Nibbana element. We're going to go deeper into that later, but this is what happens. And so he reviews what happened, and having, having reviewed it, he says, having done so, he recalled the states that had passed, ceased, and changed thus. So indeed these states, not having been, come into being. Having been, they vanish. Regarding those states, he abided unattracted, unrepelled, independent, detached, free, disassociated, 
with a mind rid of barriers. He understood there is no more escape beyond because he has touched the Nibbana Dhatu. He has touched the Nibbana element. And with the cultivation of that attainment, he confirmed that there is not. Bhikkhus, rightly speaking, were to be said of anyone, he has attained mastery and perfection in noble virtue, in sila. Attained mastery and perfection in noble concentration, in samadhi. Attained, noble, attained mastery and perfection in noble wisdom, in panya. Attained mastery and perfection in noble deliverance, vimutti. It is Osariputta indeed that, rightly speaking, this should be said. Bhikkhus, rightly speaking, were to be said of anyone, he is the son of the Blessed One, born of his breast, born of his mouth, born of the Dhamma, created by the Dhamma, an heir in the Dhamma, not an heir in material things. It is of Sariputta indeed that, rightly speaking, this should be said. Because the matchless wheel of the Dhamma set rolling by the Tathagat is kept rolling rightly by Sariputta. That is what the Blessed One said. The bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. Any questions? This sutta actually uh, talks about the process of the jhanas, but doesn't actually mention what object that Sariputta used. Mm, exactly. You could use any object, really. For the purposes of this practice, we're using Brahma Viharas. So let's go back to the sutta that you mentioned yesterday, mm -hmm. which is Metta Saha. Metta Saha Gata, yeah. So I, uh, we were having a discussion comparing and contrasting this with that mm -hmm. a few weeks back and I had this question that I wanted to ask you it might be useful to the community so yeah. I wanted to ask in the public so it says that compassion has the limit as the infinite space, space yeah so the question I had was is it possible to use compassion for the lower jhanas yes absolutely it's possible to use metta, compassion, uh, mudita, or empathetic joy, and upeka as an object of meditation to get in from the first jhana onwards. Absolutely no problem with that. Thanks. You had a question? Yeah. My question is related to jhana 8.5. Yeah. So, uh, at what point one decides that he need to take that signless connectedness? Only through practice can you do it. You kind of just stumble upon it initially, where the mind becomes tired of itself and it kind of just dissolves and there's just awareness of nothing in particular. So 
for you to be able to see that is to be able to understand that even this object is volitionally produced. And so you let go of quiet mind as well. That's the way. We're going to be talking about a sutta that discusses this in maybe three or four days. Uh, another question like, uh, is it after quiet mind or is it after neither perception or non-perception? It is after neither perception and non-perception. Before full cessation. The last samskara to go, the last sankara to go in that signless collectedness of mind is the process of identification. That sense of I am. That's why a lot of people, when they're about to experience the cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness, feel a certain kind of dread, feel a certain kind of anxiety. Not always, but sometimes they will. And that's the last vestiges of the self wanting to hold on. And it manifests as you can hear your heart rate, and you can hear you know, your own blood, and you, all of these things happen, and it's just trying to hold on. So the last sankara to go for full cessation is that conceit, that sense of I am. Thank you. Hello. As you said, uh, in the third stage of jhana, uh, the uh, mind goes out of the body. And if the mind doesn't find his body again, then uh, is it not dangerous? To do that type of uh, it's uh, it's more of a perception it, it's not like the mind actually leaves the body as such it's just that the perception of form uh, is no longer felt in the third jhana actually you're still feeling the body meaning the body feels very heavy or the body feels very light that's what's happening but, but it, does it happen uh, I have heard that uh, uh, we should uh, do uh, these types of uh, serious uh, meditation under somebody's uh, supervision and uh, uh, under somebody's supervision so that uh, it's not dangerous uh, that we can come um, back into our body. So one of the things you have to understand with our tradition is the jhanas that we experience. A lot of times uh, the jhanas can be very, very intense. But in our tradition, the jhanas actually just the back, like I said, they're just the background part of the mind. So they're actually a quite, um, quite calm and quite soft in their approach. So as of yet, I haven't heard of anyone sort of having any kind of a, um, experience where they feel like they can't come back to their body or something like that. So can we learn uh, the... Uh these types of meditation uh, with you or like here? You want to leave the body? Uh, <laughs> the body, everybody has to leave one day, but <laughs> taking the jhanas and all. <laughs> no, well, what's going to happen is you will progress through these stages. And it, the way I might have described them might sound dramatic in your mind, but when you actually experience them, they're quite subtle and quite safe. And in the interviews, as you talk about your progress, as you talk about your experiences, that's why when Venerable Nathananda and I ask, 
anything special happen in your meditation, we're looking out for certain things, certain parameters, certain signposts for us to know where you are on the path. So you might not even, it might even just skip your mind, like you didn't even realize you were in the third jhana, because it was just so, so subtle. So the attention to what's going on, and just, that's why I would recommend for everyone, is to, after you come out of your meditation, just do a little review process, and write down what you were experiencing in that moment, so that it's fresh, and so that you can bring it into the interview and discuss it. So you will be experiencing and learning these states, but they will be natural and progressive, and you know, they won't be something that's haphazard. Yeah, like slow and steady bin studies. Thank exactly. you so much. Yeah. For clarification. Um, for some who uh, have the opportunity to see past lives, how can they uh, clarify that this is not a reincarnation and that this is a rebirth? This is not a reincarnation, but this is a rebirth? Right. So um, I would think that if uh, an individual would see past lives, they would think, ooh, my consciousness just moves from all these past lives to past lives, and I'm just going to keep on reincarnating, you know? yeah. whereas in reality it's just rebirth. How can they have the conviction that this is that and not reincarnation? They'll have it in the experience of seeing past lives itself. In other words, they will see the consciousness flickering out and a new consciousness coming up and then a new life beginning. There is a certain state in between one life and the next life in which the consciousness burns out or flickers out and then a new one arises. So they'll see it for themselves, how the formations, the sankharas arise dependent upon what happens in the last point or the last thought and how that's transferred into the new consciousness. They'll see it for themselves. Thank you. I'm just picking on what he said. Uh, so, I, so I guess you know what he means is, uh, where does the concept of soul uh, come into picture when people review their past lives and say, uh, in certain traditions, yeah, right, uh, and whereas we see this as individual uh, consciousness arising and passing away. So, uh, actually, in Diganakaya number uh, one, the Brahma Jala Sutta, which is um, which is all about the different types of wrong view, 62 different types of wrong view. It actually talks about some people who go through past lives and then mistake that as being the soul or mistake that as being the self and so on and so forth. But the key here is the understanding in the experience of infinite consciousness when you see for yourself the arising and passing away of sensory consciousness. Through that, you kind of enlarge that experience and realize that that consciousness is not just through sensory consciousnesses, but rebirth-linking consciousnesses from one life to the next life. So you see it for yourself. So it's like a, it's like a fractal. So from the, the smallest iota microscopic level to the largest macro level from one life to the next. This is how it happens. That's the concept of an anatta. Yeah. We won't be able to see this. And I think right. one of the suttas go on to say that uh, a disciple of a Buddha would be able to see maybe 100,000 lives ago. A Buddha can see even more than that. And so right. On. 
Right. And uh, whereas contrasting it with other aesthetics, they would see it as a candle flame, yeah. uh, something smaller in terms of vision. I don't really remember it exactly, but it goes like that. Right. So it's, it's not also about just the, the, the number of lives that you see, because you could see like 100,000, you could see 200,000 and all of that. But like you said, the insight into anatta, the understanding that this is actually impersonal. And that's why I say when you look into past lives, your, your, your attention is not really on the life or the, the subject of each of these lives but the karmic stream that arises and passes away dependent upon causes and conditions that is rolled forward by the gears of dependent origination. So you're actually seeing how dependent origination arises and then happens in every moment of each of these lives. And thereby you're able to see with your own knowledge and vision that actually this is all an impermanent, impersonal process. Lots of questions. And can you tell a little bit more about the difference between meta feeling and joy, pity? And also another question uh, in neither perception nor, nor perception, this uh, proto thoughts uh, you are talking about. Sounds a lot to me to like hypnagogic state. Yeah. Um, the whole process in, in that yana looks like uh, you are falling asleep like yeah. consciously. Yeah. At some point, uh, no more hypnagogic uh, thoughts, only just dreamless sleep, right. conscious, mindful of that. Right, right. Yes. So, in the, the first case, the, the joy and the metta. So, the joy is actually very, uh, very much tied to. A higher kind of vibration like it just feels more excited it has a certain kind of energy to it the metta too in relation to compassion but the metta is definitely softer than the feeling of piti the feeling of the joy factor of jhana piti is like a bubbling bubbling exactly it's effervescent but the the metta is, is a, it's stable it's like you know it keeps going Now, with the um, neither perception and non-perception, with the proto-thoughts. Yeah, it, it is very much likened to a hypnagogic state, absolutely. And so what you're experiencing is the dreaming and all of these different things, and then finally the, the clarity of mind where it's a conscious, dreamless, deep sleep kind of state. Babasachita, mind, luminous mind. The what? Babasachita. Yes, that's the Babasachita. Yeah, that's right. That, uh, in other traditions, they call it like uh, Alaya Vishnana. Yeah. That, yeah. Bhavanga also. Right, like the Bhavanga, in, yeah. In Pali. In yeah. There's some more questions. Would you please just um, repeat in all the different jhanas, the different cessations that occur in the first one is yeah. the hindrances, the next one is... So in the first jhana, the hindrances cease. In the second jhana, the thinking and examining thought ceases. In the third jhana, the joy ceases. In the fourth jhana, the sukha ceases. 
That's the pleasure of the body. In infinite space, the, the relation to the body ceases. In infinite consciousness, the perception of infinite space ceases. In nothingness, the perception of infinite consciousness ceases. In neither perception or non-perception, the perception of no-thingness ceases. And then in cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness, all of that ceases. We will go into further depth about what actually also ceases, because, and I'll give you a little preview. I mean, in the case of uh, the, the first jhana, the, the sensory attachments start to cease, and then verbal formations start to cease by the time you're in the second jhana. And then bodily, bodily formations, that is, the verbal sankharas and then the bodily sankharas cease at the fourth jhana. And in the mental sankharas, cease completely in the cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness. What a what a bodily sankara would be. related to like the breath. The breath becomes almost imperceptible. Related to bodily movement, obviously you you, you sit still, so nothing's going on. But it's more about your connection to the body. You feel less and less of the body itself. Go back with, with this question here. In your experience, as you, with your sleep, if I remember correctly what you've shared in the past, that you maintain your consciousness, through your awareness throughout sleep. So are these stages of, of jhana literally the same or very similar to what you experience as the body shuts down and goes into these different stages of sleep? So when I experience, for example, the dream state, there are no dreams there. It's just this luminosity that's there. And then when you go into deep sleep, even that luminosity phase, and there's just the awareness of awareness. So it's very similar to the experience of the jhanas. So There's more questions on this. Yeah, go ahead. So how long should be that cessation to be considered a jhana? It could happen in seconds or longer or? Uh, you mean when you say cessation, like? The cessation of those hindrances. Going away? Yes. For, for a long period of time, and that's relative. It could be anywhere from a minute to 10 minutes. So in 10 minutes, you will consider that you are, for example, in the first jhana? Like I said, it's relative. It's depending upon what other factors are present. It's not just the cessation of certain experiences, but also the presence of the other factors of the, the, the subsequent jhana. So in the case of the first jhana, it's not just the non-presence of hindrances and the presence of enlightenment factors, but also the presence of joy and the presence of unification of mind, and, and so on, the other factors that we talked about. Likewise for the second, third, fourth. My question is too basic. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm digressing from the current discussion. Uh, can you tell us more about uh, forgiveness meditation? Today, Venerable... Uh, Ananda told me about it. It helped me a lot. Yeah. 
And what is there in uh, Buddha's literature about uh, forgiveness meditation? Thank you. Since you mentioned Venerable Matananda, I think he should talk about it. Yeah, so the way to think about forgiveness meditation is that you're basically training your mind to let go of the past so that you can be completely content in the present. So many of us have had difficult scenarios where we're either treated badly by others or we treat others in a way that we regret later and then that that sticks to the conscience somehow. Your conscience says, I shouldn't have done that. And that can make it difficult to generate the feeling of metta and it can create some blocks in your practice that prevent it from, from going deeper. So it's a practice that we prescribe uh, to, to people who are initially having some trouble bringing up the metta or if there's just some kind of a feeling of a blockage. But really it's something that everyone should try, I think, at some point. Um, our teacher, Bhante Vimalaramsi, did this for two years, two years straight. I mean, it wasn't the only practice he was doing, but he said there was always more to forgive. And I've found the same thing when I go back to it. Sometimes there's deeper layers of forgiveness that need to happen. So it's, uh, it's a very powerful practice, and it's you know one of the only two practices that that are taught in the tw in the twim tradition and there's a kind of a funny story where a group of russian twim practitioners they couldn't figure out what forgiveness meant because there's no word in russian for it and so <laughs> that that might tell us something about the current politics <laughs> uh no but but they were looking for a word that might mean something similar and they realized that acceptance is kind of the same. And that's another way to think about it, is you're accepting what may have happened, you're accepting yourself the way that you are, you're accepting any decisions you made in the past and just coming to terms with them, coming, becoming at peace with, with whatever happened. So, yeah, again, it's, it's a really, it's a self-exploration. And the key with this practice is not to get caught up in the story of whatever happened. Um, you know, that's, that's therapy and that, that might have its own uses, but this is really more about letting go of whatever it is, uh, just releasing it from the mind so that it doesn't stick around anymore. And I guess the last thing I'll say is that one way to know uh, at least initially that the forgiveness practice has really worked well for you is that if you repeat a phrase like I'm a good person and you really feel like yeah that's true I am a good person then you can feel like completely at ease with yourself that you really deserve the loving kindness that you deserve to be happy um, so I hope that answered your question. I don't know if you have anything else. Um, so the last part about that, which was, is there any reference by the Buddha about this? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it's really a form of... It's a form of loving kindness. It's a form of self-compassion. Um, 
those are kind of, those are other words for it. And the other thing I'd say is that I think our modern societies need, need more of this just because of our kind of upbringings and our culture. So while the Buddha didn't specifically discuss forgiveness in those words, as far as I'm aware, um, you know, it's aligned with his entire message and teaching of, of loving kindness and compassion. I think also, um, if I'm not mistaken, when the, the, the Sangha comes together, yeah. they have that whole process of uh, confessing, yeah, and then there's important. a process of forgiveness as well. So. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, see if I can get the poly right, but there's, a, there's also like a phrase that you would repeat to a teacher as a monk. You'd say, Kayena vacha chitena pamadena maya katam Achayam kama me bante buripanya tatagata. And it's basically saying, forgive me, um, teacher, because I've, you know, for any deeds of, of uh, body, speech, or mind that I've done that are improper. And uh, with Bhante Vimalaramsi, I would actually do that with him every morning for a long period of time. We'd meet in the mornings and each of us confess to each other like that. Also, when it comes to forgiveness, you know, it's a great antidote for bitterness and, and resentment. And it can actually lead to certain insights, which is first and foremost that what another person did to you is their karma. It has nothing to do with you, as it were. Whatever it is that they did is out of their own suffering. So you come to this level of mature understanding as you go through that process of forgiveness. And so you leave that to them. Because if you react in such a way that then you become mixed in with that karma, then that's, that's on you. But then if you understand that everybody is responsible for their own actions, it has nothing to do with you, then you can start to accept it and let go and, and move on. Yeah, and some people have said, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable forgiving someone because they feel like it's condoning what they did but forgiveness isn't that it's just saying you accept the apology you're never going to get uh, you're releasing your own mind you're, you know you're doing yourself a favor and also recognizing that everyone's trying their best to be happy no matter how confused uh, their attempts might be Yeah, there's a question here. And then. I just wanted to understand, um, in my understanding, the, uh, the jhanas are, of course, they're states of mind, and the mind is getting subtler. And uh, full-fledged shamatha is lower than the first jhana. And in order to get full-fledged shamatha, from what I have learned from my teachers, you need to be able to stay with your object of meditation at least for four hours uninterrupted. So given that shamatha is lower than the first jhana, when you are saying that, you know, through this process, through this retreat, this is not to question anybody's practice and experience here, but just to clarify, you know, <laughs> 
I'm not talking about the duration for which the first jhana would last, but just for us to be clear, at least from your system, what level of mind we are talking about just with the first jhana. So that's my first question. I have others, but they are different. So, so I, I, I think um, this might be related to access concentration. Maybe that's what it's known as in certain traditions. The idea is that you come to a point where your mind becomes very, very concentrated, and then you go through a process of these jhanas. So there you're doing it, but there's uh, then you come out of that jhana, and then you go through a process of insight, if I'm not mistaken about that. But here what we're talking about is that these jhanas are not exactly the same experiences we're talking about from other traditions. They're just... Uh, facilitators for deeper insights to arise. So the jhanas themselves are not the goal, as it were. So maybe our definition of a jhana would be different from what you know majority of people would say is jhana. Here what we're saying is it's more of a, a state of mind that you allow, you, you cultivate for the allowing of insights to arise. There must be some prerequisite of what it means to enter the first jhana. Yeah, it means first and foremost, no hindrances in the mind. And that your mind becomes collected and that you experience these different factors. That's how we would propose it. Yeah, also, I'll just add, I mean, there's an interesting sutta called the finger snap sutta. Yeah. And the Buddha says, uh, whoever has a mind of loving kindness for even a finger snap is said to be not devoid of jhana. So, um, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of, this is like an age-old debate. I wonder if it's Alan Wallace. I know there's, uh, or I know there's others who have various levels of very strict definitions of jhana, but that's the concentration jhana or hard jhana versus the aware jhanas, which is in this tradition. And the aware jhanas yoke the Samatan Vipassana. Ask my second question, yeah. please. Yeah. I also wanted to know that in the Tibetan tradition specifically, they highly discourage the state of uh, neither perception nor non-perception, saying that actually while the mind does get subtler, it makes your mind extremely dull. And not only that you can stay in it for a few hours, you can stay in it for lifetimes. And rebirth in the animal realm. I mean, this is the very famous debate between Kamala, Sheila, and Hashan. So just wanted to know your views on that. Thanks. I don't think I'm qualified to actually comment on that. Again, I think that's the neither perception or non-perception experienced in the concentration jhanas. Make a distinction between what you mean is a concentration jhana versus an awareness jhana. Do you remember the, the spectrum I went through the other day of the, of the spectrum of awareness? Yeah. So in a concentration jhana, you're, you're solely focused on one piece of input to the exclusion of all else. Whereas in the aware jhana, your mind's collected and you're fully there but you're still able, as the sutta that uh, Delson just read, you're able to, uh, you're leaving enough room for 
for different things to come into the mind, like the factors that uh, Sariputta was aware of as they occurred. And so that's, that allows your mind to be open enough to get insights. And when it comes to uh, neither perception or non-perception, sometimes in the suttas it does say that uh, one goes through, for example, in Majjhima Nikaya 52, it talks about how you go through the first four jhanas. Uh, you experience the different uh, Brahma-viharas and then you go into the experiences of the infinite space, infinite consciousness and nothingness. And he calls these the 11 doorways to Nibbana or the 11 paths to Nibbana, the 11 doors. So he excludes neither perception or non-perception, maybe for that reason. But neither perception or non-perception happens uh, in a way that is, it might not last for a long time either. And it could last for a long time. But even if it does, the dullness that is experienced would be the sloth and torpor. There is a difference here. When you do experience the neither perception nor non-perception with this practice, there's a there's a alertness there. There's a um, a brightness there, and there's a, an awareness there. As for you know, you could stay in it for lifetimes, or I don't know. You said it leads you to the animal realms, or I don't know what exactly that it is that you had said, but. I haven't heard about that before, so I, that's why I'm saying I can't. I can't really answer to that. Yeah. Two questions. One is: uh, up to what level does one-pointed concentration take you? To what level? Up to what level does it take you? One-pointed concentration. Out of all these jhanas that we just it can take you through all of these jhanas, but the quality of the experience of these jhanas is different compared to not a one-pointed concentration. In other words, with one-pointed concentration, you can be in that jhana to such an extent that it's to the exclusion of all other experiences. If that person is in, even in the first jhana and has one-pointed concentration, you will not be able to shake them out of that experience. So the, the degrees of concentration would be different. The degrees of absorption in which the mind becomes fully encompassed by these factors would differ. Second question is to achieve all these jhanas, do you need a retreat or you can, your daily sittings can also achieve some level? With your daily sittings also. The ones that we're talking about, you can still experience outside of retreat. I was wondering uh, about, uh, you know, this uh, part in the suttas uh, when the Buddha finished the ascetic practices and he remembers when he was a little boy and spontaneously entering the first jhana. And that uh, kind of jhana, uh, he, <coughs> he thought, well, maybe is this the path to Nibbana? Right. And he got like confirmation from, I don't know where, but <laughs> he got confirmation. So, and this kind of jhana, like a Buddha experience when he was young, yeah. is like a different jhana that uh, the Buddha learned when he was training from the jhanas that they, they were teaching him at that time in, the, in, the, in India. 
Right. So I was wondering if uh, the twin uh, awareness are more inspired by these uh, more spontaneous open awareness jhanas, um, maybe the later jhanas full absorption in the commentaries, Bisudimaga and all that, they are like more going to the side of the jhanas that they, actually the Buddha rejected. Yeah, the, the story I think um, is that uh, he did go through uh, all the way to nothingness with uh, Alara Kalama and then with uh, the other person, Ramaputta. Yeah. Um, he he said that I don't know the way to it, but I can. I, I know the way to it, but I don't. I have not experienced it for myself. He tells the Bodhisattva, and then he goes through neither perception or non-perception. But he realizes for himself that this is not the way leading to it, and then he remembers in his mind uh, when he was under the rose apple tree that uh, he was in a very pleasant abiding, and he says, perhaps this is the way to nibbana. And then from there, he starts through that process. As to whether that could be a different kind of jhana, we can't really comment on that, right? Because there's only that much of that story. And then actually, he goes through the fourth jhana. And then from the fourth jhana, he experiences the threefold knowledge. So from the fourth jhana, he goes into his past lives. He goes into the arising and passing away of living beings, seeing their karma or how karma works, and then attains the destruction of the taints, the third fold, third knowledge, and thereby then attains Buddhahood. So, you know, this debate about which jhana is better, or what is this jhana, what is that jhana, I try to stay away from that, and just see what is effective. If it works for you, then do that. to know so these jhanas uh, after one achieves a certain jhana let's say four or five based on non-practice based on certain actions or behaviors do people downgrade and come down to like a jhana which was something that they had already achieved earlier how does it work Um, so the way to understand with these jhanas is that you need consistent practice with it but it's like muscle memory When you go back into it, you continue doing it. But the jhanas are predicated, or the jhanas which constitute samadhi, are predicated upon sila. So continue to keep your sila. What you will notice is, if you do break sila, it becomes more difficult for your mind to be collected. And obviously, by that, you aren't able to get into that jhana as you were uh, before. You can still do it, but it might take you more effort and more time. So, uh, in this retreat, uh, we are continuously practicing meditation and all. So, my practical question is, ki when, we go, when we will go back to our work, being a doctor by profession, mine is a very hectic schedule and a very erratic sleep patterns. So, how can we continue the practice when we go back to our daily schedules? You have to have some kind of consistent practice where you can practice at least for an hour a day. If you can build yourself to where you can practice for sitting for an hour a day, if you can take one hour out of the day and commit that towards practicing, doesn't matter what time that is, but just do that. And then 
towards uh, at some point in the week where you do have uh, time, a lot of time on your hands. Maybe it could be once a month or maybe it could be once every two weeks. You could have sort of like a self-retreat and just dedicate yourself to doing the practice and having sort of a retreat where you commit maybe four or five, six hours of that day towards the practice. This practice is actually very cumulative in its approach, which means that as you keep doing it more and more, it starts to build momentum. And because it builds momentum, you start to have deeper insights and you start to have deeper experiences. So that's why there is an emphasis on consistent practice. But that has to be according to your schedule. The uh, question which I have is not not, not related to the, the, the discussion, but um, uh, what would you think is, uh, you know, like like what usually works better? Is it walking meditation or sitting uh, meditation? Uh, um, I've had varying uh, degrees of luck with both. I felt that during the day, uh, today, walking was a lot more effective than uh, sitting. Um, but like, uh, what would you recommend is a good split of time to have? between the two? I think sitting meditation should always be um, given a little more importance than walking meditation. Walking meditation, like I said before, allows you to be able to experience the, the loving kindness or whatever the object is and allows you to experience it in whatever it is you're doing. That's the purpose of the walking meditation. The sitting meditation is here you are with your mind and nothing else and now you're dealing with the hindrances, you're dealing with all of the different attachments and things that arise in the mind and learning how to let them go. That doesn't mean that you can't do that in walking meditation, but it's just, um, you can do it easier while you're doing sitting meditation. About uh, Niroda cessation, I mean, you explain it like a gradual process, uh, how to get there, like shutting down level, different levels of cessation to go there. But uh, I mean, there's like uh, these cases, like uh, sudden awakening cases, that doesn't follow or doesn't seem to follow that pattern. I mean, I remember uh, there was one book that uh, was describing cases of uh, sudden awakening. There were people like uh, getting into a public bus and boom, having mm. like a kind of awakening experience. I don't know if it's the same of Niroda you are describing or it's different or what's going on in those cases. Uh, what do you think? So I, I have heard of cases where people have done this practice and maybe not experienced Niroda, but uh, while maybe just washing the dishes, all of a sudden they have this sudden awakening. 
or you know they're walking and then suddenly the mind just goes blank and there's like a blackout for a moment and then they have a, an awakening or they're in the dining hall and they're just eating their food but I, I think you know I would say that all of these are still dependent upon the momentum of previous practice some kind of practice so it could be a karmic ripening let's say of previous practices that were done before Melissa con all the causes and conditions like the seven enlightenment factors and everything get together and happens like that without even you know in uh, one of the suttas uh, the buddha talks about uh, actually it could be the buddha ananda he talks about there there are four ways leading to awakening uh, one is one gets into samatha which then leads to vipassana Another is where one has vipassana, which then leads to samatha. A third is where samatha and vipassana are yoked together. And the fourth is the mind becomes agitated about the dhamma and then suddenly experiences awakening. So different causes and conditions, different factors can lead to it. Yeah, there's restlessness. Restlessness. And then suddenly the mind becomes calm. And then experiences the Dhamma. Similar to uh, listening to a Dharma talk? Or, yeah, it's similar. Yeah, it can happen with uh, listening to a Dharma talk, but I'm also reminded of Ananda's example, where he was uh, supposed to go to the first council and only Arhats were going to be at the council, and he was pacing back and forth and figuring out what he could do, and then just before his head hit the pillow, boom, he became an Arhat. And he came into that council with style. He was floating in the air, levitating, and then came and descended. At least that's the story I heard. So, Just following up on the doctor's question. So you said going back home uh, to the normal life again. Uh, consistency is good, but cumulative is very gain momentum and you can basically go ahead like achieve something more right is there besides that any other tip like for instance uh, the kind of food that we eat like here in the retreat you recommend not having solid food after the noon meal right uh, similarly is there any other recommendation that you have in terms of in terms of diet or any other areas of daily life I think, you know, with diet, it's debatable also because it depends upon a person's constitution, depends upon what they're used to, what kind of food they're used to eating. And you can experiment with that and see what works for you. But that's the thing, right? First of all, don't get so bogged down upon what is what will make it better, what can do, do this or that. That's just all different factors that might have some kind of an effect. Always remember, it comes back to the quality of your intentions, quality of your mind. And that's not always just dependent upon the food you eat or dependent upon what you do in terms of walking or not walking or this or that. What time of day you meditate, what time of day you go to sleep. All of these things, you know, they have some effect, but, you know, you, you try to optimize it or you try to make a, the perfect schedule or whatever it is. But that's just another kind of craving for existence. 
That's just getting caught up in identity with what the process should be or how it should be. And by the way, guys, we still have a few days before the retreat ends. I don't know why you guys want to talk about what do I do after retreat. I'm a bit confused. In the twin system, is there the union of shamatha and vipassana required at any stage? It happens automatically. In a sense, what's happening is, like I said, the jhanas here are just the background of the mind. And so the insights that arise are not like you have to intentionally go and analyze what's going on. If you have a mind that's just observing what's going on, then the insights will naturally arise. So the samatha and vipassana that we talk about, like the twim, the, acro- the, uh, the uh, words of twim, tranquil wisdom, insight, meditation, really what it's referring to is samatha vipassana. So it's the tranquility aspect, which is the samatha, and then the vipassana, which is the insight and wisdom that arises. How do you define shamatha in your system? Because at some point you are talking about the union of shamatha and vipassana. Basically a mind that is tranquil. A mind that experiences tranquility. What does that mean? A calm mind. A serene mind. A mind void of any kind of distractions. And so how does one achieve that state? Through the six R's. By letting go. I see. Because it seems very unclear in the sense of, you know, when does shamatha and vipassana arrive? What is shamatha? So it's very, for me, it's confusing. So I'm just wondering if you can give more clarity. Sure, yeah, I'll give it a shot. I mean, shamatha, uh, it's a collected calm mind. And so if you're in jhana and there's no distractions, your mind's collected, but that doesn't mean it has to be one-pointed. So because you're aware of everything that's happening in that kind of bubble of awareness, you're able to gain insights. So the Vipassana, right, Vipassana means to seeing through. So you're kind of seeing how reality, or seeing how your mind works. Um, because the mind is collected in this bubble without any distractions, it's stable enough that you can see kind of the micro moments uh, you can see dependent origination as it's happening. I guess one analogy too is you're basically set, settling all the sediment. If you think about like a murky pond or something, all that sediment is settled. Now the water is clear enough that you can actually have insight into how the process works. Did it be fair to say that from the first jhana onwards in this system, one has union of shamatha and vipassana? Yes. In this way? Yeah? Yes. Okay, yes. thanks. Yeah. So you're not like getting to a certain jhana and then emerging and doing vipassana. The, the insight can happen or they do happen in every jhana. For example, um, even just the insight in the third jhana that the joy, the pity is a little bit uncomfortable. There's a little dukkha in it and then that subsides and now there's more of just a a tranquil sukha. That is an insight in itself as you're letting go 
of these different levels of cessation. That is also part of the vipassana. My question is related to forgiveness meditation, like when one practices forgiveness meditation, they can enter into first jhana, is it fair to say? They would get into some kind of calm state of mind, because they don't really experience the joy factor, necessarily. They only experience a calm collectedness, but they are also experiencing thinking and examining thought, because they're using the words of I forgive you or you know, whatever the phrases might be, to come to a point where they're accepting whatever has happened and letting it go. So it's not necessary that they are in the first jhana because there's no joy there necessarily. Next, I want to say thank you to Venerable Mithananda. Yesterday he shared a good quote that uh, expectation is construction of Dukkha. <laughs> Today that uh, reverberated in my mind and it helped me a lot. I can't take credit for that, by the way. But that was a TWIM student on one of the retreats who came up with that. Oh, yeah. That was uh, Greg Gary. or Gary. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also thank you. Uh, uh, after talking to you, uh, my meditation was much, much better and 100%. <laughs> Thank you so much. So, retreat time, uh, let's talk about uh, Niroda. Uh, so, you know, you know, each one of us here, uh, we've come to this 10-day uh, uh, retreat to experience relief. Uh, and, you know, I, I just have a practical question around this. We're sleeping less. We are meditating most of the time. Uh, is it possible to mistake, uh, say, a moment of sleepiness or just falling asleep for a few seconds for mm -hmm. Niroda? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. So how would one differentiate this moment of sleepiness or just going to sleep while uh, being meditative? So I don't want to put too much emphasis on what happens in post-Niroda because I don't want to influence your minds. But there's a level of lucidity. There's a level of energy. There's a level of joy that happens post-cessation. Whereas if you're asleep or you come out of that sleep, you feel groggy and tired and... <laughs> <laughs> so it's important to recognize that. And yeah, I mean, the post-Niroda post experience is, you will know it. You will know it for sure, without a doubt, because it is, it will be something like you've never experienced before. Let's just say that. Uh, I had a couple of quick questions. Uh, one was you said the jhanas are in the periphery. And um, so is there a re uh, what is the reason to 
uh, big metta and say not mudita or uh, is there a specific reason in this tradition? So the metta is just the first in the the four Brahma Viharas. Like I was saying earlier, you could take mudita, you could take uh, compassion, you could take uh, equanimity as your object and then just stay with that. But here what we're doing is actually we're taking the metta and we're sending it to a spiritual friend and then we're sending it to other categories of people, which by the way is found in the Vasudhimaga. That's just the way Bhanteva Maramsi has structured it. Um, there have been times where people just start with radiating uh, equanimity, for example. But that's just dependent upon where their mind is or how their mindset is. But for the general audience or the general participants, we first start off with sending metta to yourself and your spiritual friend. And then accordingly, as we understand where your mind is with the interviews, then we can actually tweak your practice individually. Um, also, one of the things that you said was to enjoy the practice. Yeah. You know, uh, and uh, um, I want to read that in addition to what you said on the first uh, orientation about one of the two hindrances that you see. Uh, one of them is non-acceptance. Mm. So, uh, is acceptance of whatever is happening like kind of tied into this enjoy, enjoying the practice? Or how does that kind of work? So the aversion that you're talking about, the non-acceptance. So, yeah, accepting things as they actually are. That's the equanimity factor of this. The enjoyment is just basically treating it like a game. You know, don't be so... You know, I'm telling everybody, don't be so technical. You know, don't... Just treat it like a... More like an art form rather than some kind of technical engineering thing that you have to do. Because when you're going through these jhanas, you also start to realize that these jhanas actually kind of overlap. You can't necessarily tell you're here or you're there or whatever it might be. So treat it like a game. This is why I was saying before, have fun with it. I still don't see a lot of people smiling whenever I see them. They're all very morose. They're probably thinking about this or that. Yeah, you really want to have fun. Come back to your inner child. Just relax. Have fun with it. Laugh if you can. You know, make jokes. Really, have, have fun. Enjoy yourself. That's what I mean when I say enjoy yourself. The more your, light be uh, the more your mind becomes light, the easier it is for you to just take things um, impersonally. And the more you do that, the easier it is for you to recognize insights when they happen. And then when hindrances do arise, you don't take them personally. You don't get so caught up in them. So laughing at yourself is a big one. Laughing at the mind, the monkey mind, right? Just laughing at that and allowing it to be there and just seeing, oh, there's the mind again. It's doing its tricks. And then... When you make it fun, when you, when you take away the sting of the hindrance by identifying with it, then it's much easier for you to deal with it. And then you're reconditioning the mind to be able to deal with difficult situations in the same way. If you're dealing with a situation where there's conflict, you can start to see in your own mind and recognize where anger might arise or resistance might arise. 
and then you can let go of it and have a much clearer clearer mind which means then you can respond in a way that actually alleviates the situation rather than escalates it so the the whole practice is not about getting into jhana that's not the practice here you know one of uh, one of our organizers when i was in san francisco he said that he said this is not a jhana retreat this is a nibbana retreat this is about letting go of suffering so jhanas help facilitate that in one way or the other but what you're doing here in this retreat is you're teaching yourself how your mind works you're teaching yourself where it is that you have certain kinds of resistance where it is that you have certain kinds of attachment and you're using tools like smiling like laughing like loving kindness like compassion like forgiveness so that in daily situations where you are caught up in daily life and you are met with situations that are difficult you can deal with them in such a way that it doesn't add to your karmic stream but actually starts to let go it doesn't add to that repository of c- continual karma but actually you're able to see it for what it is take a pause relax and then respond like i said yesterday respond with wisdom and compassion respond with intuition this is the other aspect of this whole retreat you are getting in touch with your intuition what is intuition it is that mind that is beyond the thinking mind it is that mind that doesn't use or depend upon previous causes and conditions to come up with an answer it's a mind that is always in the realm of insight intuition is that that mind that always experiences those eureka moments so you are able to then it guides you right that's the right view the samaditi which we'll go over in the next two days which guides you in knowing what is right and what is wrong and what is perfect for the situation and what would not be perfect for the situation what would be most beneficial for everyone concerned so by seeing your mind and by understanding it and by letting go of the hindrances by letting go of attachments by letting go of the sources of your attachment and aversion you're clarifying your mind and by bringing up these innate qualities of loving kindness and compassion and so on you're coming back to that you know to use certain terminology the buddha nature which is part of that whole intuitive mind being able to know what is required for every single moment and it will always be perfect whatever it might be there's a question here i think yeah Uh, so i uh, really like that last point which you said about the fact that this is not a jhana retreat but a nibbana retreat so uh, to be very honest i think although i did manage to understand most most of what you spoke about i think for me to have a grasp about it i'll, I'll have to read up about it at leisure uh, but, uh, but i i just ha- had a question sorry if it is very silly 
but um, what is the degree of success that most people have had with the twim technique in terms of going through all these jhanas and like going all the way to uh, nibbana uh, like in the sense are there like folks in the the present day right now who have have managed to do that what do you think the success rate is pretty good yeah it's pretty good <laughs> <laughs> is this is this is this a question to motivate you to know that okay this is this is going to help you yeah i know well i'll i'll tell you what a lot of people they experience a lot of uh, a lot of letting go of suffering first and foremost a lot of people have greater insight into the dhamma so a lot of times whatever discourses that we're giving you uh whatever talks that are happening they might sound very complicated initially um and they might have a lot of words and a lot of different explanations but that's okay even if you don't understand what's being said that's okay your practice will start to inform you of the same things that i'm talking about right now a lot of times people will go into the suttas and they'll read it and it's like this like maze of words and it's just like this language that needs to be decoded you know it's very cryptic in the way that it's understood i mean even this word neither perception or non-perception like you, you you listen to two people talking like oh today i was in nothingness what about you i was in neither perception or non-perception <laughs> what are you talking about right or i was in infinite space and in infinite consciousness <laughs> So, you know, you go into the suttas and you read that and it's like what are, what are they talking about? But once you start to experience it for yourself, you go back to the suttas and you're able to really understand. So that's one of the things that happens. A lot of people they read one sutta, they're not able to understand it, and then through their own practice and through their own experience, they go back to that sutta and it's like the the experience has decoded that language. So that's another benefit. Another thing is people are just more uplifted, much happier. That's what we have noticed. People are able to crack jokes when times are difficult and are able to kind of just see things in a way that is, you know, that doesn't stress them out. Now, you want to talk about, you know, if people have experienced different kinds of levels of awakening, that could be debatable. because there have been people who said they've achieved this or they've achieved that but even if they told you that they've achieved this or even if i told you that there are people who've achieved this what difference does it make to you you wouldn't really know you know even those people wouldn't really know until they actually experience life fully go through different situations and are able to see how their mind interprets those situations and how it reacts to them So one of the things you will see for yourself that people have seen for themselves is how they things that used to bother them don't bother them anymore. Their relationships with people in their family or in their circle of friends where they get irritated by people's certain idiosyncrasies now they don't get bothered as much. Um you know they get less interested in things that waste time in their life. and they get more interested in things that are beneficial for their time 
So, so these are some of the, the benefits. I just like to add that uh, I think that I've uh, I've been trying to I've been trying to do that from uh, the the meditation I think uh, for a while now. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that uh, for the while that I was trying it un until this uh, retreat, I think I really benefited a lot from it. And uh, since I came here, I think it has gone up a lot lot higher. That I was wondering what I was doing. Yeah. So um, you know, I've, I mean, it has uh, like especially in the last. Um, one day as well, thanks to uh, Venerable um, Matananda and you as well. The, it, it has, uh, I think it has been a, a phenomenal change. Uh, so. well, I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Um, so, is there any any comments on doing jhana as you fall asleep or before you fall asleep? Because before I've gone into nothingness, right before I, or while I'm in bed, and then I just kind of wake up like yeah. 30 minutes later and I'm still in nothingness. Yeah. And then it, it's, it seems like maybe that's not the best way to try to fall asleep. Yeah, probably not. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can experiment and you can go through each of the jhanas and you might find that you, you can't sleep. A lot of people, when they go through these experiences, they find that they're unable to fall asleep because their mind is just like so attentive to what's going on. And just before they fall asleep, they notice all of these different micro-thoughts going on. So it might not be the best, um, best thing for sleep. I just have one comment. When, it, when I was reading about the jhanas... I was looking through the different names, and I saw infinite space. I was like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. Then infinite consciousness, I'm like, oh, that sounds even cooler. And then the next one was nothingness. I'm like, well, <laughs> I think I'll just stop there. So. <laughs> Any last questions? Okay, let's share some merit. May suffering ones be suffering free, and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief, and may all beings find relief. May all beings share this merit that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power, share this merit of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. <laughs>